Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, Jacob, and good morning, listeners. Ah, good morning, everyone. Um, you're listening to this is Jacob on the line, and you're listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, and we shall pay our respects to the original owners of the land, um, elders, uh, past and present. This land was never ceded, and we are on stolen land. Hmm. Okay, so lots of things happening, especially the Commonwealth Games. I'm sick of them. I'm sick of hearing about Commonwealth Games. I can't handle it anymore. Every station, they have the normal sport and they have the Commonwealth yeah. Games. Ugh. Yeah, I guess me, I must be disconnected from the world because uh, to us, I um, haven't really heard much about the Commonwealth Games. In fact, that's probably because... The You're only not news listening to the radio. The only news I seem to get <laughs> is from um, social media and, you know, social media... Um, when it comes to the nature of social media, you basically only get the news that you really want to hear. Um, because of, Maybe, if, if it's not fake follow. news, that's a problem. I got caught up with the folk, yeah. fake news this week. Mm. Well, actually, now, I guess in terms, I guess one thing that is kind of making the headlines besides um, the Commonwealth Games, though I haven't really seen any headlines, but the Commonwealth Games. Not I'm, important. Um, is this kind of war drive coming from the United States, especially from Donald Trump? In fact, there was a news story just uh, um, updated like 10 minutes ago. Uh, for background information, Donald Trump has, in light of a you know, suspected um, you know, gas, um, chemical weapons attack on civilians by the Syrian government, um, uh, that the, um, Donald Trump has threatened to bomb Syria or to put bombs on Syria. And the late... The latest update as of 10 minutes ago is that, you know, Syria's missile strike could be soon or not soon at all. Oh, forget it. That guy changes his mind every five minutes. I saw a, um, I heard a news the other day, people, you know, it's, it's an analysis on what Trump's doing, what he does is he's going to, um, like, for example, the tariffs. So the market goes down. He gets his people to buy shares, his company people to buy shares when the price is down. And then he backs off, the prices go up. So he's got he's made a, a multi million dollar windfall, you know, in, in, in the way he he conducts is like f- to improve his own business. And I uh, look, I, I I cannot talk about Trump because I can't handle the the the, the moronic uh, mm. rubbish he puts out and the flip flopping and even in in, in the, some of the most conservative people in the U.S. are sick of him mm. and his the way he he supposedly runs the country. Mm. But anyway, well, I, I guess a, I guess a more exciting kind of news story that's happening in the United States right now is you know following um, the teachers' strike um, yes. in um, West Virginia. Um, it is start what we're seeing evidence of is. Um, you know, this is always what happens. This is what always radicals and socialists and so on say that you know when people 
uh, have a people-powered ritual, like the teachers in Oklahoma. It gives uh, increased confidence to yeah. people around them. And yeah. in fact, lots of teacher now teachers around all these different states. Um, Oklahoma is the one that's kind of in the recent headlines have or decided to take decisive strike action to fight for better wages. So it's having yeah. a real wildfire spread. It's interesting that um, in the US in the last uh, since during the last elections the nurses were very big the union were mobilized thousands of nurses across the country. They even had buses going from place to place campaigning for Bernie Sanders. Or mm. the you know, and of course you know Hillary took over. Yeah. But um, it's it's good to see that people actually mobilizing. While the right wing is so extreme, mm. you also see the left moving, and not yeah. just left. It's, it's more the ordinary people waking up to the sh- the shenanigans of what the right is doing. I think that is vital because the left can be a, a small pocket of people who are conscious, who read, who are educated and, 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 and want to do things. But until the people move, um, things don't happen. And that's why it's good to see the, the teachers move and, and the nurses too. Mm. And, there are, and there are workers across the U.S. who are quite aware of what's going on. The question is, when are they going to actually be able to do anything? Mm. Because the U.S. only about less than 30% people of people vote. But with the students' strike, mm. after the, the, the 17 kids who were disgracefully and so sadly murdered, um, the young people are, are signing up in droves to, to vote. That's the most interesting news in the U.S., if anything. Millions of them have signed up because of that campaign. So... Good things may happen. Uh, let's hope it does, because if those young people are doing what they say, they say they're doing, the next election is going to be a fireball. Because that'll be if they can lift the voting rate from thirty to forty or fifty, then you got a race. Then you got a battle in the U.S., which was really really interesting. But I want to go back to the Commonwealth Games because I was I was having this debate with with a friend of mine. Um, and I was thinking, you know, this is not right because they have these games. And out of all the, the countries who come to the games, the vast majority of them are poor countries or countries were, that were known as third world countries. The only two countries that are very, three countries that are rich, Canada, Australia and New Zealand are settler uh, colonies from the past who are extremely well off. Mm. So they've got a better organized, better resourced team of athletes who are, you know, competing with poor nations, or athletes from poor nations. Um, and you have, you have a smattering of, of people in those nations who are from rich families who are well supported. The vast majority of those athletes would be poorly resourced. And they lift up their collar and, and carry on in the radio. Oh, Australia has won, you know, 20, 30, 40 medals, blah, blah, blah. And, and Canada's won so many. Mm. I'm thinking, you know, you, 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 who are you competing with? What are you, what are you well, carrying on? It's, it's just that it, it really irks me. I, can't, you know, can't I, think, there's di- I think there's a different <laughs> dynamic happening there. Um, I mean, there was some, there's been some really good articles about um, the Stolen Wealth Games or Commonwealth Games. Yes. Very, I, the Stolen Wealth <laughs> okay. Games is my preferred term. But what's interesting, I think this is – you can apply this to a lot of sports, um, but sports seems to provide a kind of avenue, um, you know, for, you know, people of kind of oppressed nations mm. and oppressed nationalities to basically kind of, you know, get a bit of a much larger profile for themselves and provide – 
you know, kind of inspiration. To get on in life. Yeah. Except here's the, here's the problem. Like you have a lot of talent coming from, you know, the third world, etc. But what the first world does is attempt to exploit that. That's right. Um, it's like for, the brain drain. Yeah. You know, they, um, FIFA is probably as a kind of a bit of a soccer fan in myself. It, FIFA is kind of the best example <laughs> of that. Um, because basically you have all these um, very talented um, athletes coming from countries like Brazil, mm. um, Latin America, which all, you know, exploited by the United States. And what um, England, what the English Premier League does is essentially it imports all mm. that talent and takes them straight to England. And so... Uh, Latin America is then deprived of local talent, and so their their leagues have absolutely no chance of actually competing with um, with um, the Spanish, you know, the Spanish and English Premier Leagues because yep. they basically take all the talent away from them. Once you commercialize it, this is what happens. The same thing happens with science and the highly skilled professions, where this country has failed their young people um, in relation to providing them with adequate. Um, education to be able to do highly skilled jobs, then they import um, the most talented from the poorer nations and offer them massive amount of um, uh, money to bring them here. And that was that's been going on for decades. It used to be called the brain drain. Now they bring them now. I think these days they bring them in for lower salary than local locally demanded salary. So it's got a double whammy there in a sense. Uh, it's higher than what they will earn in their country, but it's lower than what they would pay people here. There are all sorts of shenanigans going on. And uh, but I, I can't watch the, this the stupid games. It, it annoys the the hell out of me. I, but anyway, all right. So. Um, any other current news, Jacob? Well, I just wanted to read um, this article from Green Left Weekly just to highlight it because this is, I think, the front cover article of um, Green Left Weekly, um, which is about this whole um, what the fre- um, federal and Victorian government's announcement on March 27th, um, which was, which is a two-year extension of the controversial regional forest agreements for East Gippsland, the North East and the Central Highlands. Um, the re-FAs are like 20-year-old deals between the state and federal government that give environmental regulation of logging to state governments. Um, the first RFA was um, signed by in new 1997 by, for the East Gippsland region in Victoria at the height of the Gologook forest campaign and a two um, decades of forest conflict across Victoria and other states um, followed. And of course logging in native um, forests that are home to threatened species is exempt from federal environmental laws if operations are conducted um, under the under an RFA regional forest agreement. Um, This exemption has proved disastrous for threatened um, species across um, Victoria. Forest-dependent species, including the lead beater possum and greater glider, have declined dramatically due to the impacts of logging under under this system. So, you know, one of the... Basically, this kind of argument here in this article is basically saying that, you know, these regional forest agreements, you know, need to be re- re- reassessed and, that, and they are based on conditions more than 20 years ago. And, of course, they, in these agreements are actually giving, you know, the government kind of licence to basically participate in all this sort of unsustainable um, logging, which is threatening um, endangered species. But, of course, there is, you know, there are campaigns and resistance to, to this, you know, with some direct actions that have happened recently, although I can't really point to any direct action that's kind of happening now. But, yes, Friends of the Earth, for example, have been taking a bit of a lead and 
other kind of environmental NGOs like the Wilderness Society have been putting putting at, bringing attention to these um, the disastrous um, implications of these regional forest agreements. It's ongoing though that that those campaigns have been ongoing. That's why they aren't being highlighted. There are also things happening like even you know we'll talk about it a bit more, but um, the country and the city have also united a demand the renewable energy, which is related because in the end, if you cut out the forest. You, you're going to cut down trees, which provide oxygen. So it, it's all co- interconnected. You can't just separate one from the other. Um, and, and here, you know, like in, in relation to water, which is the other aspect of destroying forests and virgin um, forests, actually. Um, so if you, if you want to look after uh, people in the land, um, we... we as we repower, like, for example, New South Wales with renewable energy, um, then you have to do the right thing. So George Woods from um, Lock the Gate told a large rally in the First Nations that um, this is not acceptable. So a time to choose rally, which, is, which was held um, a year out from the New South Wales state election, they sent a clear message. And the rally um, initiated by Lock the Gate Alliance and six months in the planning drew up to 10,000 people from the from across New South Wales. So what the different states are doing, um, the despite New, New so South despite Liberals in one state and Labour in the other. The policies are not much different. Mm. Neither pa- party is is um, providing um, the providing the needs of the people, providing the needs of the land. Um, looking at basic things like water, it's as water is life, and this battle that you know cannot cannot be lost in in terms of um, doing the right thing for the people. But anyway. There are lots of things happening that we can keep talking about. I'm going to play a announcement and then we shall go to an interview that I uh, did just recently. Let's uh, go move on to the next um, item on our program today. And this is an interview with the Secretary of the Socialist Party of Malaysia, Sivarajan Arumugam. And uh, this is the interview was done in view of the fact that Elections are coming in Malaysia on the 9th of May. And uh, those who follow the news around um, Southeast Asia would know that um, the current Prime Minister Najib Razak of Malaysia was caught up in a, a finance scandal called the MDB. Um, so Siva is going to give us a, a general, general analysis of the state of play um, in Malaysia uh, Given that the announcement, the date of the elections have been announced, and before we go to it, I just want to apologise for the quality um, to a certain extent because I was unable to get on Skype. I just had to do a phone interview. So I hope listeners would forgive me for that. This is an interview with Sivarajan Arumugam, who is the secretary of the Socialist Party of Malaysia. As some of you may know, the election day has been called, as uh, it will be on the 9th of May, um, and election propaganda and campaigns have been ongoing for some time now. So we are going to get try to get an analysis overall about what's happening because it's been a quite a tumultuous period for Malaysian politics given the old Prime Minister, Mr. Mahathir Mohamad, uh, backing the opposition called Pakatan. And the composition of Pakatan has changed greatly since its origin uh, a few years ago. So let's have a chat to Siba. Mm. 
Yes. Thank you so much for making time available to talk to 3CR. It's been a, uh, must be a very hectic time for you there, given the elections uh, have been announced. Hello, uh, TCR. Thank you for having me today. Okay, and um, now let us um, just perhaps start with a broader perspective. I know the the, the broader plane of, of politics has changed enormously, given that uh, Mahathir has, or he's the previous um, Prime Minister of Malaysia, has come into the picture to support Pakatan. So give us a, a rough rundown of what's happened uh, to that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so basically, as you know, that Mr. Uh, becoming uh, the chairperson of Pakistan, he is also the, uh, the prime minister candidate for Pakistan in the event that Pakistan does come to power. Uh, overall, I think what has happened in the last uh, in the last couple of uh, months and all that, uh, it has way sort of confused people and also speeded up speeded up some of the opposition. In fact, some are a bit confused, but some like they feel like they have no choice, but uh, just accept it and uh, go on with it. Uh, but anyway, uh, what we feel from TSM is that uh, it's basically a top-get measure from uh, Pakistan. Uh, the reason being is that uh, Pakistan, I think, they have failed in sort of to address uh, some of the core issues on the Malay uh, rural uh, issues. Uh, so they feel that by having Mahadeh, they can sort of, uh, sort of pull in the Malay vote. So um, it is quite a bad thing because it's still back, going back to the racial politics, uh, whereby you need Mahadeh, who has been uh, a proponent and uh, who, who's been very clear in fighting for the Malay rights, uh, to be there and to meet the opposition, to give authority uh, to the Malay voters that uh, their rights will not be taken away. That also shows a weakness among the, uh, the opposition, such that they were unable to convince the, the bigger many matters that they would be able to take care of their rights and uh, their welfare. Yeah, so, mm. so that's what we can see now happening again. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the question I want to pose to you is what uh, made uh, Dr. Mahathir actually go into Pakatan as a leader? Because uh, Pakata, you were in Pakatan in the previous elections. Would that be right? Uh, we had an electoral pact with them. We were not members into Pakistan, but we formed the electoral pact, pact. Uh, yep. based on some negotiations with the previous leader, Anwar Ibrahim. And now you have pulled out. But just going back to well, the, the issue of um, what what was it that made Mahathir enter uh, Pakistan? I think um, what we can see is that uh, he started off with what is known as people's declaration about uh, two years ago, this was back in 2016. And at uh, that particular time, his, his target was Najib and basically the one MTV scandal. Uh, but what happened is that uh, the, the sort of the opposition and even civil society the sort of, sort of, uh, were, were, were taken in by his demands and his declaration. And uh, they, they made an opening for him to sort of come into Pakistan. And that's when I think he formed a party. Uh, they made a lot of compromise, I would say, because Pakistan, they always said that they would be a multiracial party and they accepted his party being uh, uh, only a uh, Malay party and so on. And uh, they, like I said, is that the vacuum of leadership which is within Pakistan itself that enabled Mahathir to rise up to power. So there was no really a scuffle for power. You know, there was really a vacuum in Pakistan, all the while it was like that, without Anwar. 
and basically Mahadev was, was able to kill them. And um, quite disappointingly, the rest of the Pakistan leaders, even though they've been opposition leaders for a very, very long time, and uh, they, they sort of like put aside their differences and they, they accepted whatever wrongdoings he has done. Hmm. There seems to be a little bit of excitement about the participation of Mahathir in Pakistan. But over and beyond mm-hmm. that, can you tell us if any policy changes have taken place uh, in this period when mm-hmm. Mahathir has come into the leadership of Pakistan? Even the policy within the, the Pakistan uh, manifesto in Pakistan uh, organization, yes. the policies within them, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Basically, like I said, I think there were a lot of compromises that we made. Uh, interestingly, um, our, our assumption is proven right, uh, because this time when Pakistan made their manifesto, in comparison to their manifesto back in the 2013 election, uh, in this uh, particular manifesto, the new one, uh, they have special chapters sort of emphasizing on bringing back the Malay supremacy. Now, this was never there in the previous Pakistan manifesto. So that's why we say that, you know, they want to sort of enforce, to ensure the Malay majority with Mahadev's presence. And they have specific chapters on this. And they even have a chapter for, for the Indian community and so on. So that is what we can see is that uh, in terms of he was able to sort of tour the whole thing uh, in a way that would accommodate his own agenda. And, um, but besides that, uh, there's still a lot of confusion. There are some issues which are quite progressive within the Pakistan manifesto. But uh, Mahadev seems to be sometimes quite oblivious of it. You know, he, when the press asks him, he's not very clear about it. Uh, there's one issue about the highway, uh, where you pay toll for the highway. So people ask him what's his position about toll highways, when he was actually the one who started off toll highways during his prime, uh, prime ministership. So he was like swaying, asking the other guys, you know. So it looks very clearly that some of the issues which are in the manifestos, which could be very progressive, brought forward by the other Pakistan members, but he might be very uncomfortable with it. And um, yeah, so it's a kind of wishy-washy kind of situation. Mm. So will that be the reason why um, the, the Socialist Party or the PSM, uh, which is you are the secretary mm. of, pulled out of this, go- this electorate pact you had in the previous election? Mm. Mm. I think it's, it's, it's both both issues. Two, two things sort of played out. Uh, one is that um, we did make initiate, initiatives to sort of uh, form another electoral pact. Um, that was initially initiated by us, but Pakistan basically gave us a cold shoulder. Uh, after the last elections, we wrote many letters. We, we were trying to have negotiations. Because for us, I think um, after Mahadev's entry, uh, the Socialist Party, we... we we were quite uh, uh, decided that there would not be any way that we would be a permanent partner within Pakistan Harapan because there's too many differences in policies and uh, we were against neoliberalism. We, we, we would call Mahathir as, as a father of neoliberalism for Malaysia. That's right. But anyway, um, as, yeah, yeah. But anyway, as a, at least minimum, we were thinking that even though uh, we could not be a permanent partner within Pakistan, but at least during the election, that we would, call, we would at least form a electoral pact. But unfortunately, they gave us a cold shoulder and that, that basically those talks have also failed. I mean, I mean, they were not talk in the first place, I would say. They never really uh, responded to our calls. Hmm. And uh, yeah. 
what are the other opposition groups uh, shaping up to be? Because um, all we've heard about is Barisan National, which has been in power since 1957. And we've heard of uh, PSM, which has been a, a, a small but a strong enough force in some ways. Uh, what about the, yeah. the traditional religious groups that have had, I think it's PAS, it's called. Any yeah. other, uh, any, sorry, go on. Yeah, so this time around it will be quite interesting because uh, very clearly the religious uh, party, which is known as the Islamic Party, yeah, they call it PAS in short, uh, they have come out very strongly. Uh, they are no more partners of the Pakistan Rakyat, uh, they are no more partners. And they have very clearly mentioned that they will be standing in over 130 seats throughout the country. So, um, so very clearly they will be the ones who will be putting up a three-cornered fight against Pakatan Halakran. While there are some people who sort of accuse first CSM as sort of three-cornering the opposition bloc. But I believe that the, the, the bigger problem is actually part. And how the Islamic party broke away from the opposition coalition is basically their own doing. It is basically a fight between the Democratic Action Party, EAP, and they had a big fight with PAS while they were in coalition and they, and they broke away. So, I mean, it's their own doing. In these elections, they will be fighting both Barisan National and also the opposition coalition. And they have announced they will be sending in more than about 130 seats throughout the country. Um, so while some uh, people accuse the first CSM as also putting up candidates against the opposition, but we are only putting up about 17 to 20 candidates, while the past they will be standing in about 130 or even more seats throughout the country. So for the opposition bloc, I think the Islamic party past is a bigger problem. They are the one who have formed their own coalition for with other smaller parties, and they will be, uh, in a way, a third force to really break up the vote for the opposition, especially the Malay vote, I would say. Um, the other component which has just come up, which is... Uh, we call it the People's Party or Party Rakyat Malaya, uh, Malaysia, PRM, in short. Uh, they have also announced that they're going to put up about at least about 40, 40 plus candidates uh, throughout the country. Uh, PRM is a bit of, uh, I mean, um, they had a very good, very long history of left politics, but the current leadership and the current members and the current candidates which are coming into the party, I think. Um, I, I, I would really question on whether they really appreciate the left issue that this particular party has. Now it just looks like the party is just being revived for the election and um, they are getting some sort of funds we do not know from where. And basically all of those candidates who, who did not get speech from the other parties, mainly the Democratic Action Party, and they have come into this party, taken it over, and they will be standing for elections. So to put it in context, I think um, what Pakistan is against is that it will be that 130 old seats which pass is contesting and 40 old seats which uh, the PRM party is contesting against them and we only about 17 old seats which uh, we, are, we will be contesting. Yeah. How confident do you think the traditional Barisan National Party that's headed by uh, Najib Razak is at the moment? Mm. I think they will be pretty confident now, especially after the, the uh, re-legitimation process which just took place in Parliament a couple of weeks ago, 
whereby the of course the, the election commission has got powers to do a redelimitation of the election borders every eight years. But what they have done this time is a very blatant uh, gerrymandering, very obvious. How they have sort of uh, pulled together all the votes, they've broken up the, the boundaries and electoral uh, according to race, you know, and they've given them a very clear uh, opportunity to win. Uh, furthermore, see. So I think with this uh, gerrymandering which has just taken place and they have really bulldozed it through the parliament recently, I think they will be quite confident to at least get a minimum majority of more than 50% and form the government. Yeah, I think that's what it looks like. Mm. Okay, thank you very much, Siva. It's uh, been yes. a, a good roundup and I guess it's the best we can do at the moment. Uh, we'll come back to you once mm-hmm. the election's over and uh, good luck with the elections. Okay, thank you, Larissa. Okay, bye. Welcome back to 3CR. You're on Green Life Weekly Friday Breakfast uh, Radio with uh, Jacob and Lalita. I hope you enjoyed that interview despite the fuzzy noise behind. He was in the, in the campaign office, so it's a bit tricky to get a very clear um, sound. Uh, internationally, it's always um, a bit of a problem. But anyway, going on to other news, um, I, I, I want to read this particular one. I'm rather fond of this group um, in my own quirky way. They're called Wacker, and I think I interviewed one of them um, when they scaled a Sydney Opera House uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, they're an enthusiastic group of young people. And the seven protesters from that group uh, had superglued their hands to the uh, balustrade in the public gallery of Parliament House um, where... They were found not guilty on the 29th of March. And, of course, this is news that you wouldn't find anywhere else. Um, they're accused of damaging Commonwealth property. The uh, seven participants are pa- a part of this group called Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance, or WACA. And the um, campaign that on the 30th of November uh, 2016 disrupted the question time in protest at the government's treatment of refugees um, is what they were protesting against. So the parliamentary session was halted and security officers, of course, tried to come and remove the protesters one by one and they had glued themselves to the leather bit um, on the balustrade and um, eventually the the cops had to get... um, some sort of glue or solvent to to remove them. So this this so-called crime carries a minimum of ten year or a maximum penalty of ten year jail. Of course, they pleaded not guilty, and uh, the case ran. Uh, of course, for what since uh, two thousand sixteen November, it's like uh, one and a half years, and finally they they have been acquitted. And they have said that they stand defiant and they urge all Australians to stand up for what is right. And I think that was made clear on Palm Sunday when we had almost 60,000 people marching against the way Australia treats its refugees. Um, so they were very happy um, when they were not, found not guilty against criminal damage. So they refused to be compliant to the murderous regime, they said. And they, will, um, they said they still... This is still a state of emergency. This is still a humanitarian crisis, which is um, amazing. Um, and, and for me, it's admirable that young people are willing to put themselves on the line to um, fight for refugees and human rights. Um, so that's uh, something that you wouldn't have heard from um, any other 
sauce. Now, for the drinkers of beer, mm. <laughs> especially those fans of double X, double X, what <laughs> I thought it was triple X, got four X's in it. Brisbane, the, the double X, double X workers strike uh, is on for job security. So the United Voice members working at the, this brewery in, in Brisbane have stopped work uh, well, for one hour. And, and this campaign will start rolling off, I guess. And the actions, the beginning of an ongoing campaign against job losses in recent years amounting to almost one third of the workforce being lost. And the union has also um, wa- is worried about the increased use of casual labor at the um, site. So this is another attack on workers. It, this, we've heard so many of these, whether it's the um, CUB brewery here or the timber workers out in the countryside, or there's an, an ongoing campaign, uh, which we'll talk about later. Um, that's the SO workers out in, um, you know, the uh, U- SOUGL um, site. So it goes on. So this is another one now, um, which, um, again, attacks workers. Um, so do you want to talk about anything else, uh, Jake? Because yeah. there was something else I wanted to chat about. Well, I have. Um, um, I wanted to talk about um, just generally give, um, just give a bit of an overview of what's happening in French politics right now. Um, um, so this is an article in the latest Green Left Weekly reporting on um, the rail strikes that are currently shutting down France right now um, in of course, which is um, tens of, and this is reported by in Green Left Weekly, that tens of thousands of public sector workers, led by the National Society of French Railways um, and SNCF staff, um, went on strike to protest, um, protest a series of tax on workers' rights proposed by President Emmanuel Macron. Um, according to some estimates, um, this the protest could be among the largest hit, hit France in decades. Um, and I think what's kind of um, significant to note is this is um, really kind of timed around the kind of fifth anniversary of the huge May to June 1968 strike wave that brought um, France to the brick of, you know, almost revolution. Yeah. And you're also seeing a lot of mobilisations in universities across France um, in support and... You know, it's been labelled by the French media as um, the a Black Tuesday, um, where railway workers struck to demand um, Macron backtrack on his proposed reforms. And of course, um, the strike these strikes cause kind of travel chaos. And I think what's also kind of notable is I think the left has been playing a strong role in these strikes in a sense of you know. Support Support and solidarity. Um, you know the new anti-capitalist party. You know initiated kind of a, a kind of core, which you kind know, of brought all of um, all the d- different left-wing groups in France together, in um, basically calling on, on so- support for the strike with um, lots of good um, kind of dynamic happening there. And I think you know what's <laughs> you know what's kind of interesting about this strike is I think it's sort of brings kind of the it always brings out you know who's really on our side uh in terms of the mainstream media in fact the guardian have uh you know predictably come in kind of in defense of macron you're kidding well it's 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 suspected you know they've not they've attacked corbett they attacked corbin uh you know during the uh for you know such a so-called progressive newspaper when the miners' strike happened during the Thatcher time, they were completely It's a long time ago, but more recently they've been a bit more supportive though. Mm. No, I, I I just think the Guardian 
the main kind of editorial line. They will run alternative viewpoints, but the yep. kind of main editorial line so it's is a mixed, in, yeah, mixed contribution that, that the radio, uh, mm. the, the paper makes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, it's nine thirty nine. So let's uh, talk about a few more issues, and then we can move on to the next interview. Um, if that we can trace that person. It's always tricky when they're at um, a major rally. Okay, there's this news here about public housing. Um, a depressing thought it may be, and it's getting worse in Australia. Um, in New South Wales, it has received a great kick in the um, gut, really, because what they have said is that um, the New South Wales government plans to ban people with a history of drug offences from living in social housing in parts of inner city Sydney. Um, the desire to provide an environment that people that helps people who are trying to minimize their drug use and stay away from drugs market is un- understandable. And I think more, a lot of people would, would, might even agree with that. But the reality is there is no evidence that this is what the policy will achieve, um, according to, to this article anyway. The Minister for Social Housing, Prugao, told ABC Radio that the aim is to reduce temptation for drug users living in these estates, quote, once a person is released from prison on drug offences, it's the first five years that are critical in keeping them away from crime, she said. But let's start with the minister's first claim that the purpose of the policy is to help people experiencing problems with their drugs. So rather than uh, supporting them rehabilitate, um, if that is what ha- is happening, to ban them from public housing means they become homeless, which then exposes them to more drug use and drug pushing. Um, so it, it just seems to, doesn't make sense to me. So here we go, another government bureaucrat making um, decisions and, and passing laws that um, is not going to be very useful in the social front. So the approach um, mimics the aspects of U.S. drug policy, really, which has sought to deny a range of services, um, including welfare, access to public housing, to people in, with drug convictions. And so looking at the, the prevention of drug use and how do you support people um, get rid of that habit, they are punishing this. The punitive measures seems to be prevailing in, in most of these um, aspects, as you can see, and that's you know, in the end, ends up a war against people who really should be supported. Okay, moving on to another news, international news, Ethiopia, which you rarely hear about. So the past 26 years, um, Ethiopia has been ruled by an authoritarian government, and the party in government is the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, TPLF. It's a very, it's a, apparently a very criminal group, and it represents the interests of just one tribe one of the tribes in Ethiopia. So the control of the TPLF has over Ethiopia is therefore an undemocratic one, of course. So the problem now and for the past 30 years has been that the TPLF um, have been the dictators of Ethiopia. So like it likes to ferment conflict between the Christians and the Muslims. This helps prevent the population from, use, uh, from uniting against the tyranny and the overthrowing it's authoritarian government. It's like the colonial powers, divide and rule. It's a strategy that has been well uh, cemented into the minds of so many uh, colonized nations, and and the the leaders that followed seem to be copying copying that um, policy, and it's not working for the people. 
So the, the TPLF actually take land to gain control of precious minerals. Um, same strategy, you know, steal the land from the people where there's minerals and in any form of um, rich resource you can sell. So there's silver lining to the dark clouds of t- to the TPLF rule. The people of Ethiopia do not listen to the media spin of the ruling party and are waking up to the illegitimacy of his rule. So they are swiftly realizing that the ruling strategy of this party is the same as of the Western colonial governments, as I said before. So divide and conquer, of course. So there are millions of people in in Ethiopia who are now um, rising up and um, repeating the slogan, unity, freedom and democracy. And uh, they're proudly and courageously asserting uh, the people united will never be defeated, part of our slogan for this program. And let's move on to um, another news, something that um, I guess people don't like to talk about in the mainstream media is the gun industry, um, unless there's someone doing a research or, or, or a uh, new space that is not going to be shut down by Turnbull's government. This is about the gun industry. So um, the, the the her record, the record last year, there were forty one homicides and twenty five thousand over twenty five thousand first degree murders in just um, one country. That's Mexico, south of uh, Australia, of course, uh, south of the USA, of course. And um, just an analysis on that one country, uh, Trump has labeled the Mexican migrants heading to the U.S. as criminals, but it has ironically overlooked the fact that 70% of the guns coming into Mexico originate in the U.S. So here you have a country who has uh, adapted to um, the gun culture of the U.S., and now the result is thousands of people, over 40,000 people, are suffering homicide. So with the, the recent shootings in the YouTube headquarters in San Francisco, the inspiring movements of young people demanding gun control and Black Lives Matter, protesting police impunity, the issue of systemic deathly violence in the U.S. is receiving important attention. So the impact of that violence outside the U.S. borders largely goes under the radar. So in, in in its biggest arms exporter, it's, it dominates global military spending. Uh, and it sold the majority of guns globally in 2016, and Britain comes only second to the to the U.S. Um, with under 10% of gun sales. The U.S. has been the leading arms dealer in the world for 25 of the 26 years of in the past. So you can you can see that. The wars that, that are happening around the world, especially the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, where do they get their arms from? If there were no arms, there'd be no violence uh, to the degree there is today. The, the massacre, the genocide is happening in Syria, um, Yemen, just to name a couple. Um, so the analyst Nicholas J.S. Davis estimated about 2.4 million uh, Iraqis have been killed as a result of the illegal invasion of their country by the U.S. Um, so the, and the United Kingdom, and about 1.2 million Afghans and Pakistanis have been killed as a result of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. So we have the gun industry, which is led by the U.S., and then followed on by um, the U.K., and I'm sure the other European countries, Germany and France, would be too too far behind. Um, 
so you have um, trade happening here, a murderous trade, and uh, nobody talks about it sufficiently. They only carry on about the, the, the poor people who are suffering in these countries who are being shot and all the violence they suffer. But nobody goes to the source of the problem. Just as in the U, just as as in the U.S., you have got people who are being shot, but they refuse to take the guns away or change the gun laws. So it's it's a horrendous crime, and I hope more people are waking up to this this um, obvious fact, really. Um, and international internationally, the war has to stop. Uh, how they do that is is rather obvious. The people have to mobilize, like the students of the U.S. Um, violence can only beget violence and you what what you have is the instigators of violence are the ones who are holding back the human the blaming other people and, and and it's like a drama it's like a you know soap soap opera on tv when you watch these people negotiate and and, and discuss these things at their bureaucratic organizations like you and so on but anyway it really irks me um, so the Western media focuses on the drug trade across the Americas, but ignores the gun trafficking so, interview. Yeah, something I wanted to talk about actually is this: just this article um, that has just appeared in uh, Green Left Weekly. It is um, probably many um, listeners might have heard, um, probably in you know left wing kind of political discourse that about this whole idea of uh, universal basic income um, and the idea of this universal basic income is the basic idea is that the government um, is for the government to, you know, play a role of giving everyone, you know, uh, regardless of, you know, whether they're rich and poor, a kind of regular income uh, that would uh, um, that would be enough to cover their basic needs. Uh, it could be like, you know, an un- it would be an unconditional payment, um, meaning unlike, say, uh, you know, our current system and under New Start, it would... You would um, you would not have to work or satisfy job search tests to receive it. And um, as Peter Boyle in his article here on Green Left Weekly um, writes here, UBI has been promoted over the years as a solution um, to mass poverty, um, unemployment, and but then the other thing about it is it also can be arguably a way of. Um, of starving off serious political challenges um, to the capitalist system. Um, this idea of a universal basic income has been championed by the likes of Alan Mosk um, and Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, it's been a subject of official research papers. And recently, it's been in the margins of Australian politics until it was floated by Greens leader Richard Di Natale in his national press speech uh, in Canberra on April the 3rd. Um, you know, basically, it was kind of this idea that, you know, there's research. We are living in this time of massive kind of automation, etc. Jobs are are being slowly killed off by automation. So why don't we um, talk about this idea of giving everyone a kind of uni- uh, unconditional basic income? And you know, we know that you know secure income could drive in- innovation research, and it won't consign people people to poverty. It would enhance creativity and help reset what is meaningful in. In our lives, um, but interesting enough, in response, you know, Dean Natalia's kind of support from universal basic income, you know, was ridiculed in the media and by Labor and coalition um, politicians. But of course, it was, but it was defended by Walid Ali on the project. Um, he, you know, he argued, 
His argument was that 40% of the workforce is going to lose their jobs in a fast-approaching high-tech rotopia, um, and so we'll need to have a basic, um, a basic universal income. And, of course, you know... <laughs> He he kind of mentioned this interesting thing that oh it's being trialed in Finland a, a plate, um, but I think what we need to kind of examine and this is what the article points out is that in the case of how it's being implemented in um, it's being trialed currently in Finland by a neoliberal capitalist government and um, and it has support from the libertarian right. And of course, this is a government that is implementing um, austerity. Um, and of course, what what is quite clear, and this is the argument that the article makes, and this is kind of an argument I kind of agree with. This idea of universal basic income is kind of is being pushed from a conservative perspective as you know potentially a way of cutting um, spending on on welfare and social services. And, of course, there are other proposed um, trials of aspects of UBI in the Netherlands and Spain that may come from a more progressive and egalitarian um, perspective. But, of course, Peter argues here that all modern concepts of UBI seem rooted in defeatism about the possibility of breaking um from capitalism, and that the big fear driving the recent currency of the UBI idea is that of um, impending massive unemployment flowing from exponential technological change, especially in automation and artificial intelligence. It is, spe- it is a spectre of millions of workers being rendered redundant by our new overlords, as Ali puts it. But this technological revolution does propose a society does pose society with a choice about whether to accept a future of even more gross inequality, um, which a corporate um, profit-driven um, version will deliver, or a future where we can all be liberated from the drudgery and have more time for leisure, creativity, and the capacity to be part of a new participative um, democracy to displace the rule of um, the corporate uh, super-rich. Um, is UBI the dangerous idea of our century that can help us advance the struggle or to break the rule of co- corporate-rich? Or is it, at best, a defeatist and distracting schema and, at worst, a redundant soap from above when social and political contradictions become too great? Um, and Peter Boyle kind of get, makes this argument here in the Green Left Weekly that you know it is essential that the left champion the idea that everyone in our society should be guaranteed a decent income, but this should be a right, as should decent health, education, and housing. But we shouldn't confuse the idea of a livable uh, outcome as a right with UBI, you know, or you know, one of the arguments for it is when we look at how it's being trialed in all these different countries, UBI um, experience currently underway involve payments that are not even enough even to subsidize on, even the one in Finland. And worse, they're all assessing what other welfare rights and social services could be cut to pay for a UBI. UBI Universal basic income. Oh, okay. Yeah, because um, I kind of established it at the start tone. Um, yeah, and and concretely, um, you know, what we kind of need to do is we need to urgently build a movement to immediately raise the cruelly low new start allowance to a livable level. Um, the union movement ought to be fighting for this alongside the fight for better wage, which are also falling uh, in real terms. And concretely, we need to build a movement for a large-scale campaign for public investment in renewable energy, public transport, public housing, and public education. All these will create jobs, and if they're not, still not enough jobs to make up for those lost from automation, then we need to fight um, 
uh, need to fight to share the workaround for a legislative um, enforced shorter work work shorter working week with no loss in pay. And you know, but um, I think just now getting to the kind of summary, the summary of this argument is um, against UBI or critical of UBI because I'm not particularly my personal views. I'm not completely against UBI in principle, but I do feel a universal basic income is being championed by these sort of tech giants like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk for a very good reason, and that is. I think the capitalists are, going to, uh, are attempting to co-opt this idea of the universal basic income to basically address the contradictions in capitalism, you know, when you have increased automation, etc. So it's, it's one way of basically, you know, if all these people are increasingly becoming unemployed, uh, then we can make them happy by just giving them basic – we'll just give them money to make them happy and they can still remain consumers in the neoliberal capitalist market. The basic argument there failed, in my opinion, uh, because um, firstly, if you're going to have um, artificial intelligence as, as you know, what your, or mechanization as you're talking about, is that if – the skill base of those workers is going to increase. You're going to have to increase their wages. You can't stick with the, this uh, UBI you're talking about. Um, and the UBI can be applicable to people who are on welfare, if if at all. Um, but the better argument for that is, as, as you said, sharing the work around a, a shorter working week, more social hours, um, and people who have got a decent income to be able to... Um, live their lives, you know, the contradiction is, is just glaring people in the face. The less you pay people, the less consumers you have. Mm. That's a contradiction in capitalism. The less people, people who buy your products, the less profits you make. How do you realize your profits if you don't have um, people who buy your goods? So it's, it's a Marxist sort of analysis, I guess, but it, it still begs the, the, the question that, these guys don't think very clearly when they talk yeah. about this sort well, of I think, issues. I think it goes into this kind of trend that um, right, for a lot of people, um, you know, the, the contradictions and the problems of capitalism are quite glaring to us. I mm-hmm. mean, we have this massive... But people are not willing to concede to this idea that, well, actually the main problem with capitalism is the fact that is this question of power? The fact that ordinary people, you know, like ourselves and and so on, the aren't workers. the ones aren't having a say on how society's run. That's right. And so, what we actually, um, what the capitalists are responding with is this sort of techno fix idea. Oh, we can just fix capitalism by just giving everyone <laughs> by letting the state give everyone free money. So it's all this sort of technocratic kind of view. Of but who's who, where's the the state going to get the money? Firstly, there'll be less workers paying tax. Capitalists don't pay tax anyway, so yeah, where's that, the state going to get the money? Yeah, yeah that's the problem. Well, that's that's the other issue I mentioned before <laughs> earlier in UBI it's is ridiculous. universal basic income is to pay for it. What the capitalists are actually thinking of, they're not thinking about, oh, yes, well, to pay for UBI, <laughs> we're just going to have to tax the rich and the corporations so, so we can fairly – um, no, that's not what they're thinking. What they're thinking is, oh, yes – what we can do to give everyone a universal basic income is maybe we can cut some social services. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and anyway, that's a contentious not it's not a contentious argument, it's a real argument and it's um it's glaringly obvious to the majority of everyday persons if they think about it clearly you know it's not it's not rocket science yeah. um, but i guess but um it'll be probably worth i think this universal basic income is actually a bit of a debate in the left and so i've only 
presented my viewpoint in line with this There'll kind of article. There'll be more views to come. There'll and there'll be probably be um, some counter-arguments um, to like what I just put forward. It's like a living wage. It's been around for a little while. It'll go on. But I want to move on to a quick article before we go to announcements. Um, it's, it's, it's an article written by Kamala Emanuel about the movement for change uh, that's growing uh, head of the abortion board, as, as we know in Ireland. This has been a contentious issue for a very long time. And campaigning for a women's rights to choose in Ireland has stepped up since the announcement of the date and wording of a referendum on changing the uh, consti- constitution to allow abortion. The referendum will be held on the 25th of May and asking voters whether to repeal the section of the Irish constitution that bans abortion. If passed, it would allow Parliament to make laws to regulate the the procedure. So it's currently banned, abortion is currently banned, and um, the constitution under the Eighth Amendment uh, was adopted by a referendum in 1983. Um, and Sean Stanley of the Melbourne Irish Abortion Rights Campaign said that impetus for the Eighth Amendment was Roe versus Wade, of course, in the U.S., the old case, ruling um, uh, that anti-abortion activists in Ireland <laughs> wanted to prevent similar judicial intervention, making abortion accessible to women in Ireland. So we'll have to watch this campaign. It's going to build momentum because a lot of Irish women actually fly to Europe to have um, abortions, and that's a dangerous practice in many ways because, um, you know, first they've got to be able to afford a safe abortion, uh, things will be pretty expensive there. Um, but it remains a women's issue, women's body, women's rights. So that's a basic, very basic stuff um, that people don't seem to want to accept. So let's go to announcements um, before we go to... Welcome back to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And you're listening to Friday Breakfast, Green Left Radio. We are on to the um, regular activist calendar that we have 8 o'clock every Friday morning. So I'll start off with the ongoing campaigns, the SO workers at 200, uh, where 200 SO and UGL gas maintenance workers have been fighting for well over probably 250 days now uh, for against massive cutbacks in anti-family roster. So there's a uh, Facebook. You go uh, uh, on the computer, you can find support. The SO workers is the one you're looking for. Uh, and the uh, uh, there's a fighting fund that's been established for you to um, pay into. And the details are on Facebook. Now, um, until Sunday, 22nd of April, which is only a few days yet, Rod Quantock, um, the happy comedy man. Uh, happy birthday to me is the title of his show, A Walk Down Memory um, Tollway. Rod remembers it when it was Elaine with the foundation uh, member of the contemporary Australian comedy. Um, so if you want to watch good old Rod Quantock, who's been a, a tremendous supporter of 3CR, and he's a political supporter of many um, fundraising events by uh, Green Left Weekly and many other um, political groups uh, do um, attend his um, show. It's at the Arts Centre and bookings will be at that website. Friday, April uh, 13th, which is uh, today, there's a protest. Stop violence against refugees on Manners 12 noon at the Immigration Department, um, Castledean Place, Cornwall Spring and Lonsdale Street in the city if you're interested and if you've got time to go. Um, it's at 12 noon. Uh, tomorrow, Saturday, there's a March for Science, uh, Birurungma, Lower Terrace City, in the city. 
there's a match. Uh, so that again is on uh, Facebook uh, under the title of March for Science. And the same day, there's a forum on Indonesia, Stable Discontent and the Challenge for Radical Politics. And um, it's uh, the speaker's Max Lane uh, it, at the International Workshop it's uh, at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. And Max Lane has been a long-time um, activist in that area, has written several books, or translated several books um, written by various uh, authors in um, Indonesia. Uh, last one before Jacob, you can take over April 15, workshop on um, Latin America and the world economy, a series of courses conducted by Adrian So from Monash University, 3 to 6 p.m., Trades Hall, again, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton, organized by the Latin American Solidarity Network, and that's on Sunday, 15th of April. Yep. Um, just in terms of the um, next announcements, on Tuesday, April the 17th, um, there'll be a delegates mass meeting at 10 a.m. on Tuesday the 17th of April at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, it's been called um, by, uh, it's basically kind of the, um, called by the kind of... Sh- um, ACTU. ACTU, yes. <laughs> ACTU <laughs> as part of the Change the Rules campaign. And they're basically calling all delegates to, to sort of map a path uh, plan of action so this should be quite massive um and all all delegates um from um, from all different unions and workplaces will be there i hope many turn up because this will be the start of a campaign hopefully they'll realize some of the dreams of the workers Mm. um so on tuesday the april the 17th as well um on that night there will be a forum after afrin what now for northern syria's feminist democratic revolution um the turkish invasion and occupation of afrin one of the free liberated cantons of the democratic federation of northern syria raises some fundamental questions can this feminist plurist democratic instrument survive and will be seekers will feature Horjan Aziz who's a Kurdish solidarity activist editor of the Middle Eastern Feminist Facebook page will be um, speaking via video link in Kobani and and we'll have Dave Holmes solidarity activist from the Socialist Alliance and that will be um, and that will be at uh, Tuesday, the April seventeenth, um, at uh, six thirty, um, with meal from six pm at the Resistance Centre, Level Five, four hundred seven Swanson Street, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. Um, there'll be a film screening on Thursday, April the nineteenth, um, Toxic Free by Toxic Free Faulkner, um, screening on the documentary The Green Shane, um, and that will be at the seven thirty pm at the Faulkner Primary School, um, forty Lawn Street in Faulkner. On Friday, the April the 20th, um, there'll be an emergency organising meeting, um, Solidarity with Afrin, Opposed Turkey's Invasion. And this open um, organising meeting will discuss what we can do in the next weeks and months to spot uh, um, like Turkey's invasion and ethic, ethnic cleansing of Afrin and put pressure on the Australian government to break its shameful silence on the issue. This, the meeting is open to anyone who wants to help develop real solidarity with Afrin and the liberation struggle in northern Syria. And that is at the Multicultural Hub in the Purple Room at 506 um, Elizabeth Street. And it's sponsored by um, Australians for Kurdistan. There'll be a rally um, Sunday the April the 22nd on breaking the silence on climate change. Uh, and they'll be at um, 1 p.m. at the Donald Gardens in St Kilda, organised by Friends of the Earth. 
Um, there'll be a forum on changing the rules for refugees at 6.30pm at the ANMF 535 Elizabeth Street in the city. And on Sunday, the April the 29th, there'll be a frame screening, Stop Adani, uh, a Mighty Force. And that will be at the, at 7pm at 558 Blessington Street, St Kilda. So the last announcement I'll just make is, uh, the big, the May Day March will be happening on Sunday, the 6th of May at the Shrades Hall with music from 11am and the march at 1pm. Sorry about that, um, listeners. Didn't mean to interrupt the announcements there. Uh, but we have uh, Julian Burnside, uh, Australian, esteemed Australian uh, barrister who practices principally in commercial litigation, trade practices and ad- admin law. Um, but he's also a prominent human rights and refugee advocate and author. So we have Julian online um, to talk about a documentary, a brilliant documentary, which I have seen a preview of, called Border Politics. So let's talk to Julian. Uh, Welcome to 3CR, Julian. Thank you so much for um, offering to talk to us this morning. Hi there. (laughs) So tell us um, about this this, uh, documentary. What instigated you to make it in the first place? Well, I'm not the maker. Um, I'm just the person who... Um, does Present. a lot of the travelling and talking. Yes. But the, the filmmakers are um, a firm called Rhyma Childs in Sydney, and they contacted me some while back and said, look, would I take part in a film that will involve all of this stuff? And I said, not really, because I'm not mad on travelling and there's other things to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they persisted, and I eventually relented. And <laughs> Good. Um, so they've been carting me around to all sorts of places looking at, the way the world is treating refugees. And I must say it's been a very interesting experience. Mm. Um, you've been to all sorts of different countries. Um, so what has been your experience? And tell us a little bit more about the people you met in the various countries, the state of politics. The, 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 the title is, is in a way, provocative in a, provocative in a way because it actually directly is called Border Politics. Um, yeah, well, I'm, and that's a pretty accurate title when you think about it, mm-hmm. because um, um, the, the, certainly in the West, we're increasingly obsessed about um, stopping people at the border unless we particularly want them. And in Australia, of course, this started with the Tampa episode in August, September 2001, and became clear with John Howard's famous observation in the November 2001 election, we will decide who comes to the country and the circumstance in which they come. Now, I think that's a very interesting statement that he made because if he was talking about migration policy, he's absolutely right. If he's talking about refugee policy, he's absolutely wrong. Uh, But, of course, he was talking about refugee policy. Now, the reason is, uh, to take a domestic analogy, I'm entitled to say I will decide who comes to my house and the circumstance in which they come. And if I'm sick of having visitors, I can say I won't have anyone here until Thursday week. That would be a bit uncivil, but it would be reasonable. Now, let's suppose the next morning a little kid runs up to the front door and knocks on the door and said, please help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing me. I could say come back on Thursday week, but that would be appalling. What you do is you let them in and you sit them down, check their story, And if it's true, protect them. If it's not true, send them away. Now, that's what refugee policy ought to be. Um, And when we get people who 
throw themselves at our feet asking for protection from persecution and almost all of them turn out to be genuine refugees, we should behave with an ounce of decency. Unfortunately, we've not been doing that. And a lot of countries in the West um, are also being hostile to refugees, thinking, well, we're not going to share our luck with you. It's a pity you like that, but, you know, nick off. Uh, a lot of Western countries are like that. America is perhaps um, especially like that at the moment. Uh, uh, Australia is probably world's worst, from my observation. A couple of countries are doing it very well. Uh, one that really impressed me was Scotland. In Scotland, which has got a population about the same as Sydney, um, when I was there twice last year, and... At the time I was there, in the in the 12 months up to the time I was there, they had settled in the community over a 1,000 Syrian refugees, which is, make, makes our, our efforts look fairly tame. Anyway, they, they settled and genuinely settled in the community and made welcome. And I spoke to a number of people over there about the, the way they had responded to the Syrian refugee crisis. And a number of them said to me in substance and one or two said in actual words, they said, these people are human beings, they need help. Mm. Now, I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could hear any Australian politician speak like that? You mm. know, it's, it cuts right to the heart of what it's all about. That's right. Uh, and, and yet, in Australia, where we really fancy ourselves as the land of the fair go, we, I think we, we like regarding ourselves as a country with, um, you know, that sort of values decency, and yet... And yet, that most basic, decent response is missing. And it's uh, very, very sad. Mm. Um, the, the fact that we, we're more troubled about ball tampering in a cricket game than yes. we are about people I know, it's very, very sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple of things I want to explore, but, you know, I've got my own views on this in terms of rich countries and poor countries, how they became rich and poor in the first place, which is a more in-depth analysis. But I'm just wondering, why do you think that um, the rich countries are so paranoid at this stage. And this, of course, go to the, goes to the heart of the title, the politics of this. Um, uh, that's a question I'm probably not well equipped to answer accurately, but my instinct says it's because of selfishness. You know, people who have a lot like to keep it for themselves. People who have less um, are a threat to the richer person's desire to keep things for themselves. What we don't recognise in Australia is that if you share your good fortune, you don't actually impoverish yourself. You, in a strange, interesting way, enrich yourself by, by taking a decent attitude to people. Now, consider this. The country that really impressed me was not a Western country. It was the country of Jordan. Now, Jordan is interesting because... It's uh, a small country. Physically, it's relatively small. Uh, its population is less than half the population of Australia. Its uh, geography is challenging because it's got Israel, Palestine on the west, mm. Iraq on the east, and Syria on the north. And so depending on what sort of troubles are happening in that part of the world, they get a lot of people simply walking across the border looking for protection. When I was there in the middle of last year, there were about a million Syrian refugees living in the community. It is in the community which has a population of about 
nine and a half or ten million people. They had a million Syrian refugees living in the community. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're not... Tra- if, if there was an ocean between Syria and Jordan, which there isn't, they'd be boat people. As it is, I guess you could call them shoe people or something. Mm. Uh, anyway, up near the Syrian border, I spent a couple of days just a few kilometres south of the Syrian border at a place called Al-Zartari. And there is a refugee camp at Al-Zartari. And it's an open camp, so people can come and go. There are people living in the camp who have jobs outside the camp, so they leave each morning, come back each evening. Al-Zartari, when I was there, had 80,000 refugees living there. Um, and uh, amongst other things, there were 2,000 shops in the Al-Zartari camp set up by refugees and run by refugees. And the, the most remarkable illustration of the optimism which this sort of um, um, hospitality gives them is that one of the shops is a place where you can hire bridal gowns. And I thought that is just the most wonderful, eloquent illustration that the people living in the refugee camp have got a sense of hope for the future mm. so they might want to get married. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? But what fascinates me is why is it that, you know, um, there are so many countries where refugees are escaping from? Yes, we know the violence in Syria and the Middle East and the Yemen and so on, but it's across Africa too. Um, did you explore that at all? No, no, that was um, beyond the scope of the um, film that the filmmakers wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> And um, you know, it's 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 uh, not difficult to theorise about of course. an answer to that. Um, and you know, one theory is: well, have a look around and see how many of those places were occupied by colonial powers and were exploited for their natural resources. That's a fairly obvious and fairly easy uh, assessment to make. Um, but I, I, <laughs> despite everything, I'm actually not a political person, and I. <laughs> have to stuff like that. Yes, that's uh, the colonialism coming home to roost is the way I see it. Yeah, yeah. The long-term but impact. It, it's a very interesting thing, um, uh, and this perhaps this does go beyond what the film is, but that's an interesting thing to think about. Are we, uh, are we as a race capable of seeing ourselves as all part of one human race or... Do we see ourselves naturally as little subgroups? Um, the, if you think about it, Homo sapiens, which is our species, <clears throat> the first emerged around about 200,000 years ago. And until about 10,000 years ago, we tended to live in small groups of 50 to 100 people, um, you know, sort of family and extended family sort of groups, and protecting ourselves against the um, outside environment, the threats that the environment had, and so on. Now, Yuval Harari, in his book Sapiens, which is a fantastically interesting book, raises the question without answering it, are we, by our genetics, inclined to identify with small groups, the groups of people we know, or do we identify with larger groups? You know, are we... It's only 10,000 years ago we began living in cities, Mm. Um, and only really since the what, 18th, early 19th century that we started living in very big cities. Mm. Um, you know, the idea of us being uh, little groups that live in 
cave somewhere out in the wilderness is is a matter of uh, very ancient history or prehistory. Uh, so if if you say to yourself, well, <clears throat> do we identify with people in those impoverished countries in Africa? Do we identify with them? Do we see them as um, part of the group that we are part of? Or do we regard them as a sort of alien species that we need to push away and ignore? And if they're worse off than we are, well, that's their bad luck. And, you know, one, one part of us should say, yeah, look, they're human beings. They're, we treat human beings differently than we treat other animal species. Um, we probably should be prepared to say we, they are part of us and we have some kind of obligation toward them when they look to us for help. Um, now, that's probably too idealistic to survive, although it becomes, <laughs> a very real, it becomes a very real question when global warming is on the horizon. That's right. You know, it's the very first time in our history that we have all of us, all of us, every human being on the face of the planet, we've all been threatened by a single possible event. Yes. And um, anyway, that's just a hobby horse of mine. That sounds good to me. <laughs> and um... <laughs> well, there's there's a very there's a very this is, I know, I'm supposed to be talking about the film, but <clears throat> um, global warming doesn't really get a look in it in the film for good reason. Um, but there's an interesting thing. You get a lot of you get a lot of um, people who deny global warming, and they will say, in substance, look, um, okay, there's lots of scientists who say global warming is real and and dangerous, and at least in part anthropogenic. Um, but scientific truth isn't established by majority vote. And that's true. Um, Galileo stands as a, a marker of that proposition. Absolutely. Um, but um, you can say to them, well, OK, let's suppose that all the scientists who say global warming is you know, <clears throat> partly anthropogenic and dangerous and real, uh, <clears throat> let's suppose that there's only a 20% chance that they're right. 80% odds say they're wrong, okay? So there's a 20% chance of an avoidable, catastrophic result to the human race. Um, that's actually worse odds than Russian roulette. Yes. <laughs> uh, so if, if, you, if you want to deny global warming, go and play Russian roulette. And they'll say, oh, no, it's not going to hit our generation. Mm. Okay, go and play Russian roulette with your children or your grandchildren. Mm. So you see how they respond to that. Yes, that's really interesting. But I do see a link between um, climate change and the refugee policy because as more <coughs> land uh, sinking happens, yeah. will, that will create another massive uh, refugee um, influx into various countries that are in the higher grounds and already the northern um, ice slabs are melting. So it's real. So it, it's going yeah. to create refugees. You know, the polar bears are dying. And, and- and not not just not just the um, <clears throat> ice packs that are melting. I mean, the Arctic ice melting doesn't matter too much, although it's a marker. But it doesn't matter because it's floating anyway, so it doesn't increase sea levels. But if the Greenland ice shelf yes. melts and slides off into the ocean, or the Antarctic ice shelf, or mm. part of it, mm. slides into the ocean, then we can expect three to five meter sea level rises overnight. Yes. Now that that's what catastrophe looks like. And you're yes. you're absolutely. There's one comment I'd make though. Sure. If if people, uh, the definition of a refugee is a person who, being outside their country of origin, is unwilling or unable to return because of a well-founded fear of persecution on various grounds. But 
If you're outside your country of origin and unable to return because it has disappeared beneath the ocean, you're mm. not a refugee. Oh. Colloquially, we call them climate refugees, and that's a meaningful expression, but it's not a refugee within the meaning of the Refugees Convention, and they're not refugees within the meaning of the Australian law. And and if, if we need to make things look a little bit bleaker, Peter... Dutton is now suggesting that we should withdraw from the Refugees Convention. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. But there, there's, there's, there's an overarching idea in all of this. At the end of the Second World War, as the world drew breath in horror, as the reality of the Holocaust was revealed, um, Eleanor Roosevelt got active and decided that we needed a universal declaration of human rights. Mm. And for the next couple of years, she and a team worked on it. And, of course, it was accepted by the General Assembly of the United Nations on the 10th of December, 1948. And it is a truly remarkable document. Um, and Australia, by the way, participated in its creation and contributed beyond our minuscule size at the time. We had a population of maybe three or four million people at the time. Mm. Um, and, of course, Doc Evatt, an Australian, presided over the General Assembly on the 10th of December, 1948, when the Universal Declaration was accepted. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights articulates um, the, the, the sorts of things that we ought to, the attitudes that we ought to bring to our dealings with other human beings. Yes. And it's, it's a remarkable document. And actually, it does come in to the film because um, yes, I've been some that. time at Dale Kill. Yes, yeah. I saw that. And, it's um, good. It's fantastic. It's, uh, I mean... Eleanor Roosevelt must have been an amazing woman. Mm. I, I wish I had met her before she died, but she was truly startling. You mm. know, came from a rich family, but um, was a true egalitarian. Mm. You know, the Val Kill is amazing. Here it is, the sort of home of... She spent the last 15 years of her life there, I think, after FDR died. Mm. And it is a very modest place in the countryside, and yes. yet she was probably the most famous woman in the world. And you, 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 do, you do go in there and have a look at the house too. I saw on, on the preview. It was fantastic. So on that note, I'm going to have to end the interview. I'd love to talk to you a bit longer, but that's very interesting. And I hope people actually go and see this wonderful documentary. And I enjoyed it thoroughly. And thank you for well, um, talking I'm glad. About it. Thank you. And I hope people watch it too because right now, the idea of human rights seems to be sinking below the waves. People seem no longer to think that human rights are important, but they are. Mm. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that was uh, Julian Burnside, our esteemed uh, barrister, who was enthusiastically promoting uh, this documentary. And this uh, film, Border Politics, is being shown at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival on the 15th of May in Melbourne. So if you look it up, you'll find it on the internet and you can book a ticket. And Gillian uh, Triggs also um, has involvement in this politics, in, in this, in this um, documentary. And the award-winning director and producer is Judy Reimer, whose work has been commissioned by both local and international broadcasters. So this will be a very interesting movie to see, and I, I, I suggest that people should make it a point to see it because I've seen the preview and it's absolutely engaging. Um, very well made, of course. Um, so I hope you will support this movie.
Um, and this brings us to the end of the program. Uh, let's thank Julian Burnside, of course. And unfortunately, we couldn't get on to the Aboriginal speaker who was supposed to talk to us about the stolen wealth um, event that's happening in Brisbane. Um, and uh, we should thank uh, Sivarajan Aramogam from Malaysia for um, the interview we, I did a couple of days ago. So we shall say uh, goodbye and uh, thank you listeners for uh, listening to the program from Jacob and Lalitha yep. and BZD standing at the door. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.